Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean Stewart, welcome to the roundtable. Hey, guys. Uh, good to connect, guys. Monumentous week to unpack. Uh, we've had some terrific coverage in the hub from Brett Stevens to Janice Gross-Stein uh, to our own Sean Spear. But I I think our listeners would understand that neither Sean Stewart or myself are much of a set of experts on the Middle East. So we are not going to sit here and pontif- pontificate and wax big thoughts about war and strategy in this unfolding uh, effort by the IDF and the state of Israel to destroy, in their words, uh, Hamas as a military force. We're going to leave that to the other voices in the hub that you'll continue to see in the week ahead. And instead, guys, I want to talk about how all this has played out in Canada, because I think there is some threads in a conversation today, which could pick up on some of our past episodes. And just generally, I feel like this has been a morally clarifying uh, moment, uh, uh, a kind of a six to seven day period where the wheat and the chaff have been separated. And uh, let's talk about some of those insights. And I want to come to you first, Sean, because you began the week at the Hub on Monday with a piece that got a lot of traction from our readers on uh, the kind of the stress, uh, the fracture points that the Canadian model of kind of pluralism was put under in terms of these counter protests uh, that were quickly surfaced in our major cities that featured to, I think, the shock of many of us, fellow Canadian citizens um, seemingly supporting these acts of utter uh, brutality and depravity on behalf of the Hamas terrorist organization and doing so, Sean, without abandon, without any sense of moral approbation, without really a second thought. Why don't you give our readers and listeners again, a taste of your key argument and let's go from there. Yeah. uh, Everything you just said. And the only thing I would add to your framing is all of course, with the, protections granted to them by um, the values and institutions and ideas that underpin Canadian society. Um, It's been a pretty destabilizing week for me. Um, As I said in that article, I sort of define my politics by the idea of pluralism. And, um, you know, it seems to me one of the things that you know, that I had to confront this week is the is is the tests and, and possible limits of pluralism, you know, that uh, the idea that we would create the conditions um, through our guarantee of freedom of speech and freedom of assembly and freedom of conscience and all the rest uh, to enable 
uh, you know, what seems like a pretty meaningful minority uh, of our population to have views that just strike me and, and not just to have views, but um, but get out and organize around a set of views that strike me as incompatible with um, some you know, just basic precepts of of our country is, as I say, destabilizing. And I think, you know, in the in the immediacy of of the moment, we need to be there to support um, um, Canadian Jews uh, um, who are going through obviously a difficult time, and we need to. Um, restrain ourselves because, of course, we know that there are a lot of Canadian Muslims who are who's who who are not represented by the the, the voices that we've seen on on the streets. Um, but I do think, um, you know, over the medium term, um, this is going to lead to some, I think, tough ought to lead to some tough introspection about um, uh, about pluralism. I'll turn it over to you in a second, but. Uh, I talked to David from earlier today. In fact, by the time this episode is out, my conversation with David will probably be out as well. You guys will remember during the the immediate the leadership race after Stephen Harper left as prime minister, um, uh, one of the candidates advanced the idea of a so-called value statement, and it was it was largely mocked and criticized at the time because it was viewed, I think, rightly, is a, as insincere and cynical. Um, but I do think. Something like that is going to um, have kind of rising salience in the aftermath of this week. And I um, I don't, you know, I would have projected it out of hand uh, last Friday. I, I won't dismiss it out of hand um, uh, this Friday. Yeah, I think we need something like a, a Barrington Declaration for pluralism, that there are certain things that are out of bounds, one of which would be glorifying a, tor a terrorist organization that perpetrated the largest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust, uh, murdering women and children, abducting them. And again, I just, I, I'm a, I'm a free speech guy, but there are limits. And I just, what shocked me was just the extent to which, and we can talk about this later in the program, because I want to talk about politicians first with Stuart, but the extent to which it's, it's not just, kind of yahoos and pickup trucks with Hamas flags, it's broad swaths of the labor movement in Canada, broad swaths of academia. And wow, I just, you know, I just hope people are, are taking names and taking numbers because a lot of people really, I think, shocked me this week coming out and aligning themselves. Uh, some, you know, using the usual were, you know, wiggle words, uh, of context and balance, et cetera. Others going a lot further than that. And I just, I think these individuals have courted a moral stain that they will carry with themselves professionally and personally uh, for the rest of their lives. And so they should. Stuart, to come to you on the politics of this, I was, again, interested to see this kind of something that shouldn't be partisan at least initially was kind of partisan. You had conservatives like Premier Doug Ford coming out very early and very hard with a clear condemnation of, uh, of Hamas and these terrorist acts. Other politicians like the prime minister eventually getting there, but not till Monday, you know, 72 hours later. Now, maybe he was stupefied after a especially large turkey dinner. I don't know, but it just strikes me as strange how 
something that shouldn't be ideological, at least seemed ideological in terms of how politicians responded to this, probably Olivia Chow, alas, being the poster person for how to insert foot into mouth when it comes to commenting publicly on, again, the largest massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. Yeah, it is. It's interesting to imagine that Monday night um, event happening on Saturday night, because in substance, it was perfectly fine. Um, the substance of the PM's comments were fine. He said similar stuff to Pierre Polyev, uh, although Polyev's rhetoric is just naturally harsher because of the way he speaks. But they were saying much the same thing. And I, I wonder if maybe that's a sign that the elite conversation on this among politicians was one thing. And then we were all looking at rallies um, on Twitter. Um, there was a piece um, by a writer in the U.S., Saurabh Amari, about how this may be a sign that woke is dead. Um, I'm not willing to go that far, but I do think there was kind of a shift here. Um, a lot of the progressive people, I think, were getting into knee-jerk muscle memory stuff on Saturday, um, just based on historical stuff that happened uh, in Palestine. But things have changed since then, as the details have emerged. I wonder if that's a sign of the extreme nature of what happened on Saturday, or if that's a sign that maybe things are changing. I remember in 2021, um, the Overton window of debate really, really extended. You could say virtually anything and sort of mainstream progressives would go along with it. I don't quite see that happening here. And I don't know what is causing that, but I think something maybe has shifted a little bit. I think there are some exceptions um, um, to that point. Maybe, maybe step back Just to respond directly to your point. I think there that may be a long run consequence of this. I do think that there are a lot of centrist and even center left people who've had to confront the radicalism of the hardcore left, people who they've allied with on a lot of issues over the years, including ones around identity and so on. And, and you know, I, I know that there are a lot of progressive Jews, for instance, who um, who have been more destabilized than I said than, than, than I've been because they've discovered a lot of their political allies hate them. Um, so yeah, it probably does have possible long run implications. But there are two institutions that seem to me don't quite um, fit your narrative. The first is universities, and the second is is parts of the media. Um, you know, um, we should call it out. Last week we talked about the CBC. And I made the point that the principal case to get rid of the public broadcaster was uh, about um, a kind of technocratic discussion about the role of a public broadcaster in an evolving market and so on. Um, I might want to revisit that case uh, in the aftermath of uh, clear evidence that uh, CBC journalists from the top were discouraged from using um, language like terrorists. Um, that uh, use passive language about people's uh, people's deaths and 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 other um, cases of violence. I think the you know the public broadcaster um, did itself a, a massive disservice this week, and I think it will cause a growing share of the population um, to come to the conclusion that it it, it needs to go at least in its current um, a, a current form. The universities, though, are another area. I it seems to me, guys, that what we saw was a, a, an instance when most Canadians were naturally moved 
by what we were learning and seeing. Um, I don't know how you, you can't be. Um, um, I, I'm afraid I don't know how you can't be. Uh, and yet we had these lunatic um, professors uh, whose um, who's salary and defined pension, benefit, defined benefit pension plans are paid for by us um, using radical lunatic ideas to try to rationalize and justify uh, what what the rest of us were seeing um, in front of us. And I, I think um, that that growing divergence between universities and the general public is a long-run threat to their sustainability. And as stewards of those institutions, university presidents and others need to step up. Um, and if they don't, um, I, I, I think that the, the, the long-run risk is you know, my grandpa in Thunder Bay says, I'm not prepared to um, keep paying for this stuff. Um, um, it doesn't it doesn't reflect my values. It doesn't contribute to the public interest or the public good. This is basically taxpayer subsidized um, lunacy that um, that only is able to exist because of the state's course of powers to take taxes from us and pay for it. Um, and so if you're a, um, a rigorous scholar at these institutions or you're a, 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 an administrator or executive, I think you have an onus um, to call this stuff out um, or or it seems to me that the risk will be um, to the institutions themselves. Recommend that uh, listeners check out our piece today by Jonah Davids, why are normally outspoken universities suddenly hesitant to condemn violence against Israel. It's a real scorcher. He nails it. And uh, Sean, I, you know, I think here the compare and contrast is really interesting, right? Because the extent to which these same individuals have uh, in these institutions and some institutions themselves are keen to express and denounce uh, all kinds of other forms of uh, very, yeah, legitimate uh, discrimination, they are then suddenly conspicuously silent on the massacre of women and children and defenseless civilians. I mean, the contrast is incredibly stark. And Stuart, you know, we saw this also in the labor movement, I think kind of sh maybe possibly shocking to a lot of rank and file blue collar, uh, you know, unionized workers whose dues are supporting these organizations and they're tweeting out, you know, and again, tweets pulled down and the usual dance. We didn't really mean what we said. Here's what we said, but it's not really an apology. And it just kind of makes the whole thing worse. We saw a lot of that from organized labor. So, you know, I get concerned here because I, it's one thing again, yahoos and trucks, uh, you know, horrible. And it suggests a real not, problem. Nazis. Ignorance. Yes. Yeah. yeah Nazis. Yes. It's, it's just, it's, at best, ignorance, at worst, you know, active hate that needs to be the subject of public censure. But then let's understand that it's not just yahoos and trucks. It's whole swaths of the humanities in higher in institutions of higher education across Canada. It's large sections, seemingly, of some of our biggest unions. And you put that all together, Stuart, and you really wonder, like, do we even understand what pluralism is? Like, do we even understand that pluralism is about 
not just rights, but responsibilities. It's about reciprocity. It's about mutualism. It's about uh, an ethos of kind of care and respect and duty to each other. And all of this just seems completely out the window in this kind of uh, inane, narcissistic uh, obsession with decolonialization, which then becomes an excuse for the extermination of Jews, literally. And some of these tweets linking decolonization to uh, theories of decolonization to the legitimate use of violence to, quote, resist. I, I just... I don't know, Stuart. I just, I really wonder how people get there. How are we so messed up that we have supposedly some of the country's brightest minds and sharpest thinkers purveying this crap? <laughs> yeah, this, this in, crap. In, in quotation marks. <laughs> yeah, I highly recommend listeners read the feature piece in our Saturday newsletter tomorrow from uh, Howard Anglin. And he does talk about this, this danger of, adopting the language of the most extreme people in your movement. And the right is obviously not immune to this. The thing that we saw recently in the US is that the midterm elections where some of the more extreme language on abortion got adopted and it hurt them. And I think the left is really in trouble with this kind of stuff because um, there, I think there is a tendency to sort of glibly go along with these terms without really thinking about what they mean. Defund the police is a great one where you had these people you know, the, the faculty lounge people saying we should defund the police. It just means hire more social workers. And like, obviously, that's not what was meant by the people who really meant it. And Howard, I think, lays that out perfectly where, you know, he explains the different factions in a movement and how they all mean different things by the same words. I think that we need to be a little more intellectually rigorous with this kind of stuff. You have to police your own movement uh, as well as you police the other side. And I I think that this kind of overreach, this was an overreach by Hamas. I don't think that's going to turn out well for them um, because of that. And I think it was an overreach by the left in Canada where, you know, Howard just says normal people in his piece. Normal people watch this, people who aren't ideological, and they had normal human reactions to it. And I think that's the thing that's going to really hurt the left because most people sitting in their homes aren't filtering mass murder through an ideological lens and uh, okaying it. You're so, um, I, I envy in a way your dispassion here. Um, um, but I, no, I, I'd go further. Like, what line of argument rooted in this theory of decolonization and the extent to which that provides license for the so-called right to resist doesn't extend to Canada. Like, uh, you know, is does it follow logically that these people think that um, that Canadians of European descent uh, would be justified to murder us, uh, to behead our children, um, because uh, um, our ancestors weren't the first ones um, on what is now present day Canada? Is that the serious line of analysis put forward by someone earning $150,000 um, of taxpayer money with defined benefit pension plans and um, shirt grants from Ottawa, you know, to the tune of a, a million dollars? Is that like in a world of scarce public finances, is is that what we ought to be spending our our dollars on? I, 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 um, you know, I, I am had a reputation, I think, in Ottawa as um, a member of the Harper government that was predisposed to the university sector. Uh, I 
um I, I I'm a failed PhD um but I I um but I have a lot of um time for the intellectual life I there's a kind of parallel universe where I'm a history professor at Lakehead University or something like that um so this doesn't come from that kind of typical knee-jerk anti-intellectual um animus that um sometimes one finds in conservative circles I think there's a deep rot in Canada's universities I think it it's exposed itself this week and I I think it creates um a source of vulnerability that if they don't self-police somebody else will um and um and I I think we can say to come back to Rudyard's point about pluralism some ideas are bad and wrong and we've heard a lot of people say things this week um that are bad and wrong and I think pluralism doesn't preclude us from doing that and it doesn't preclude us from doing that not just at the individual level which we all ought to do more of um but but also collectively in fact I think the takeaway from this week is there's onus on us um to um call out more ideas that are bad and wrong because we've seen um ultimately uh, what happens if they are permitted to go uncontested you know what you're you're on exactly the same wavelength after this week it's like there we, we've been passive about this in Canada and I have a confession to make. I've been a bit passive about it. You know, I've just been willing to think, oh, this is fringe stuff. Um, I've even at times uh, thought to myself, you know, anti-Semitism exists. It's real. But is this really one of the big problems facing the country? Well, this week was a wake up call for me. All of this you realize is part of our collective passive attitude towards the country. And when I see, and I know, Sean, you feel strongly about this too. When I see these, uh, boy, I get emotional about it. These Israeli men boarding flights to uh, return back to Israel to fight and put their lives on the line for their country. You know, that is a society with, with mutualism, with respect, with duty, with responsibility. That is not a decadent society. And I just wonder, frankly, about our own decadence here, the extent to which we have tolerated, encouraged, funded to the tune possibly now of hundreds of millions of dollars across Canada, these crazy loony ideas that then, you know, again, not for all their proponents, but for a not insignificant minority, boil down to justifications for some of the worst crimes against humanity that I've seen in my lifetime, and I'm 52 years of age. I mean, come on, come on, Canada. Stuart, let's round this out with the discussion of the media, because Sean mentioned the CBC, and you know, at the Hub, we spent, I don't know what, I think it was a nanosecond deciding to call these bastards uh, terrorists. Um, that wasn't a hard call for us, but other parts of the media, including the CBC, but not just the CBC, have really struggled with this. And I guess I struggle a bit, Stuart, to understand why they're struggling. I get it. There's conventions, there's habit, there's muscle memory, but somehow it seems more than that. It seems, again, these mealy mouth words like context and balance become, become uh, the very things that should cloud some moral clarity that we should all be taking away from this moment. We're, we're kind of making this more confusing and opaque then it is. 
Yeah, you may remember a couple of years ago, there was a big debate in the media about how maybe objectivity isn't the right thing for us. <laughs> and maybe we need to call things what they are. And I, if you read the CBC statement on what they do with words like this, it's very bureaucratic. Um, it is the I think this is also the tendency. I think there's an ideological side of this, but there is also this tendency to put the decision off. And their defense was, we will describe the acts and readers can decide if it's a terrorist act or a terrorist person. Um, we just don't do that with a lot of other things. We name things what they are. And I think that their retreat into objectivity, objectivity is always something that you aspire to. Um, it doesn't mean that your language can't be descriptive and that you can't make sort of normative judgments on what things are, because we do that every day. Every reporter gets up in the morning and says, what am I going to write about today? Maybe it's the news of the day and you don't have a lot of say in that, but you decide the angle, you decide who to talk to, and then you decide how to write that story. There, 95% of that is subjectivity. Um, I, I think most of it is just fear of causing a problem. And what they will do is always kind of err on the side of where the organization ideologically leans, which is nine times out of 10 is to the left. And do, do you sense though, Stuart, uh, that they, they have second thoughts this week, or they realize that this was a mistake. I guess what I'm trying to understand is it's not just simply the blowback against describing terrorists as militants, which if you look up the Oxford dictionary is really describing them as combatants, which is in a sense, legitimizing them as, as uh, you know, participants in some kind of Geneva style convention, you know, conflict. Is it, is it the pushback? Is that getting to the media or is it just that they realize that objectively they were wrong? They failed to understand that this wasn't just um, the latest in a series of skirmishes between Palestinians and, and Israelis, between Hamas and the IDF. This again was the worst massacre of Jews since the Holocaust. Yeah. And you know, terrorism isn't hard to define. It's it's violence against civilians for a political purpose. And, you know, we saw that. And there has, every now and then when there is a shooter in the US, you know, some kind of lone shooter in a mass shooting, there's always that call that would say, hey, if this was an Arab guy, you would call it a terrorist. If it's a white guy, you don't. But sometimes these are just indiscriminate. They're based on someone with mental health issues. There's no political purpose there. And I think it is helpful to define those two things uh, as what they are. Um, you know, you'll know, Roger, behind the curtain, I put the safest possible language on this story when we were publishing it on Sunday, because that is my temptation as a journalist, is to just try and choose neutral language, put the piece out there, do it in the safest way possible. Um, and I think that off-ramp is very tempting for people who aren't even working on sort of an ideological level. It's I don't want to get any fuss. I don't want people emailing me. I don't want to get in trouble. Um, so there's there's two things working on people. And I think actually, you know, Sean made the argument uh, around the notwithstanding clause that if you don't like it being used, you should kick up a fuss. And uh, same with this. If you have a problem with that language, it does actually help to kick up a fuss. You can work the refs. And if you're right, it might end up working after a few days. Yeah, that's a ton of uh, insight. Really a good window into that world. And I would just say um, one of the things that left me with my conversation with David, which I really encourage people to to listen to, is he says, 
most people are kind, most people are decent, but most people are afraid or they're, and, and I think one of the reasons this minority has had such a, um, dominant voice this week is because they've, they of course are not afraid. Um, and so I hope one thing that this does, cause I, I should clarify, um, you know, I'm, I'm a bit more animated than most Fridays as people can probably tell. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not proposing that we need a series of new laws that, you know, c- c- um, constrain, um, what people can think, um, um, or, you know, what they can talk about and all these sorts of things. Um, I think this is ultimately a civic responsibility. And, um, you know, I think we should call out stuff in our institutions, uh, with our families, you know, with our friend groups, with our broader networks. Um, and, you know, it seems to me there's this, I, I think most people on university campuses know a lot of this stuff is crap. Um, but they, there's, there's a whole host of reasons why they, they don't need to call it out. Right. It's not in their faculty. It's not in their department. Um, you know, they're working away almost as like scholarly entrepreneurs. And I guess what I'm saying, um, and this extends to other institutions as well, and maybe the society as a whole is that our culture is something for which we are all ultimately responsible. We are all kind of caretakers of, and, um, I think we've, um, essentially abdicated our responsibility as caretakers and we've permitted the worst voices amongst us the space to make arguments uh that are um that are um poorly um intended and ultimately bad and wrong um uh, and do that essentially uncontested and i think you know i hope one of the takeaways from this experience is we're all just a little braver um to call this shit out um, um, you know, I, I think that for me is the, the biggest takeaway since, uh, since this, uh, uh, terrible, um, um, horrific uh, event last Saturday. Look, it's been a week of, uh, a week of some clarity, I think for everybody, certainly for me and, uh, I'm sure for many of our listeners and, um, yeah, we got to get on the front foot. This is, uh, not over this, this war is in its opening stages there are going to be many more moments of uh of heartache and pain uh for israelis and palestinians um in the days and weeks to come and we've got to through all of that continue to fight for this idea that um we're worthy of each other's respect we're uh we're able to see each other's uh, humanity. The violence is never, uh, never an option. And when we see people behaving in ways that are contrary to those values and ideals, call it out, name and shame. Uh, people need to feel the approbation of the silent majority. And the majority has been silent for far too long in Canada. So I hope, especially on the issue of anti-Semitism, we've all learned something this week. And that silent majority stands up and has its voice heard and expresses itself in ways that push back against hate, against people who literally want to eradicate another group for no other reason than their culture, their religion, 
and their identity. It's abhorrent. Nothing justifies this. And as we've talked, there are segments of labor in Canada, academia, and those assholes on trucks with Hamas flags who um, we really need to uh, name and shame, take numbers, take names. Uh, I've got a list. Um, let, let's keep adding to it because, again, I think all these people are making the biggest mistake of their lives. They will live with this moral stain supporting Hamas. Uh, it's unfathomable for the rest of their lives. Well, that's our conversation this week. We've got a set of terrific content for you this weekend. Howard England's must read. We've got big geopolitical thinker Robert D. Kaplan coming up early in the week. I'll be interviewing him. He was the author of Balkan Ghosts and other big bestsellers like The Coming Anarchy. He was at the Battle of Fallujah embedded with the U.S. Marines. So he's going to give us a, a sense of what a ground invasion of Gaza. That's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of all the great content we have coming to you at The Hub next week. Have a terrific weekend. We'll talk to you again on Friday. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the IRA and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.